Jeff's an operating partner at the Silicon um, Valley office and leads Bessemer's CFO advisory board. He's former EVP um, and CFO at Oracle and served as CFO at several public and private companies, um, including DoubleClick and King World Productions and Nielsen's Media Measurement. So, um, and then also I'd like to introduce Jim Kelleher, who's a former CFO at Jeff at Drift. Um, so we're really excited to, that you're here today, Jim, and looking forward to hearing about your journey. So with that, uh, the floor is yours, Jeff. Well, Carrie, thank you very much. And it's great to see everybody in the audience today. Uh, Jim, we're very we're excited to have you uh, speak to us today. You've got a distinguished background as a chief financial officer at a number of important companies, as well as an audit committee chair. And now you're an angel investor as well. So we're, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about all those different roles and hats you've been wearing. What I'd like to do is to start with uh, the time you were at Log Me In and you were thinking about going public. There haven't been any tech IPOs for the last two years, but probably we just heard from Goldman Sachs this morning that the uh, tech IPO logjam will probably uh, break open starting in September. Well, they expect to have half a dozen or so tech IPOs later this year. Uh, so you, back in 2009, this is right after the financial crisis or maybe during the financial crisis, you were the CFO of Log Me In. You had filed for an IPO and you were ready to go. And what happened? Tell us the story. Yeah, we were. I, I remember leaving um, Lehman's offices. Actually, um, I think it was like October twelfth, two thousand eight. Lehman, um, Lehman was your lead banker. Yeah, Lehman was our uh, was our lead banker. Um, Lehman was far, far left, and and J P Morgan um, was far right. Um, but we left. I remember. I think it was October twelfth, two thousand eight. Mike Simon, the CEO, and I left. Um, uh, uh, Lehman's headquarters, and it was just as the, this must have been 2007, actually, it was just as the NASDAQ had peaked, and we remember looking up at the um, uh, at the board and thinking, okay, it's a great time, like, here's the NASDAQ peaking. And then um, the, the world of the banking world kind of went to shit thereafter, right? Um, and and um, we, were on, we were on file for, for roughly 18 months um, um, uh, through the, the entire banking crisis. And as we just talked about, when we went on file, um, uh, Lehman was the lead bank. And when we came out, um, uh, Barclays was a banker, but they weren't the lead bank because we didn't necessarily want to be the first one out um, uh, with Barclays as uh, as an IPO. So we flipped JP Morgan. Because Barclays bought the Lehman Investment Bank. Is that correct? That's right. Barclays, Barclays bought the Lehman Investment Bank. And so they came out um, on the far right. It was the same staff and everything. It just took it over. Um, but we, we did not want to stay far left, for those of you who have been through an IPO, um, as this would have been Barclays' first IPO. Um, but but anyway, yeah, we were one of one of um, four tech companies to get out in 2009. Open Table went out. A company called Solar Winds went out. A company called A123 went out. Um, and once Open Table got out, we knew that the window was open, and so we went out as a 56 million dollar um, software company, growing at 50 percent. And we're we're the last, I think, of the tech companies to get out that year. Um, so it was a pretty dramatic time. We we're gonna follow that whole period. And pretty exciting time as we went and 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 got out and you know I think at least helped pave the way for 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 further IPOs going forward. And tell us what happened around the pricing discussion. Yeah, so so as you can imagine, um, it was a um, it was also because it was so tough. It was a tough time pricing wise, right? And we were small for an IPO. We we're a sixty million dollar company. 
Um, so we had a lot of discussions throughout the process of what, what the price was going to be, and we thought we had agreement um, on, on pricing with all the bankers. And lo and behold, um, we were to present to the sales staff on a Monday morning. And lo and behold, on that Sunday afternoon, um, the bankers called and said, hey, they were having trouble with our pricing and wanted to renew the model or reduce the price. Oh, wait a second. On Friday, they liked your price, but on Sunday, they didn't like your yeah, price. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Sunday, they didn't. Yeah, as they got, as they got, as they got ready to present um, their internal numbers, um, because they needed sign off internally um, before we could present Monday, you know, midday to the to the salespeople. So they were going Monday to their pricing committee Monday morning. But yeah, so so I. And it was at a time when um, we were we were on a first thing in the morning flight uh, on Monday morning from Boston, New York, to then present to those to, to the bankers, and um, uh, they wanted me on a conference call to kind of review the options. And so when they got there, there were like sixteen people from all the different banks and all the different analysts on the call, and we had to go through the model again. And there was a lot of pressure on me as a CFO to. Um, um, either take the model up to support the pricing um, or accept the lower price. Um, and uh, uh, I was not in a position to do either and wasn't going to do either. So we we had a little bit of game of chicken. And in the end, the banks were, were okay with the price. Now, it was a very successful offering. It was uh, like, mm, I want to say nine times oversubscribed. Um, and the price went, we priced at 16 and, and stock first trade was at 20, right. And, and 12 months later, the stock was at 32. So, so in the end it was, it was a, you know, it was a nice job by all, um, uh, they were trying to do their job, but we got it out and we were very successful for the shareholders and the employees. Well, congratulations on that. So you priced it at 16. Did they want you to go to 1550 or yeah. how low did they want you to go? Yeah, they, they were in the mode of this thing should be 1415 and we could support it at 14 or 15, right? And, and you know, we had signed off on our pricing committee at our board already at 16 was the number. And and I had I was in no position to go back on that. Um, but at the same time, like we had to go, we were going one or the other. It was, you know, the, the, the foot was on the gas, right? Um, so... Um, we, we, we had to, we have, somebody had to, to buckle a little bit to make the decision to get, get it out. So yeah, we got it out at 16 and it priced fine and effectively at, at 20. And was, like I said, nine, 10 times oversubscribed. Now, uh, your CEO, this is late at night. Your CEO had already gone to sleep. Uh, did it occur to you that you should wake him up and get the CEO involved in this conversation? Yeah, yeah, but, those, but 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 he had shut off his phone. I, I found out the next day. So so Mike Simon was the CEO. He's a very very good friend of mine and, and very very smart man and was the founder of uh, of Lug Man. But yeah, he had he had shut off his phone that night and um, I didn't see him until like six thirty in the morning at at, um, uh, at Logan and and he said, "Hey, sorry, I had shut my phone off. What happened?" And I was like, "Yeah, no problem. We're we're ready to go." Oh, so you had <laughs> called him and would have gotten his input, but he didn't answer the phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he he was he was already getting ready for the morning. How about that? That's terrific. Well, why don't we go back in time to the beginning? Uh, you grew up in the Boston area. I did. I was born and raised in Boston. Yeah, just outside of Boston, um, uh, about 15, 20 miles north of Boston. And in uh, kindergarten, when the teachers say, what do you want to do when you grow up? You said, I want to be an accountant and a CFO. Yeah, uh, not quite. I'm not sure I knew what an accountant or a CFO was when I was in kindergarten or even was in grade school. Um, but but no, as, as like like any um, 
any kid or, or male at that time anyway, you want to be an athlete, right? And so you want to play baseball or, or uh, you know, you want to play basketball, right? And so you had dreams of doing that when, when I was in grade school, not of being an accountant. And so tell us how you got into a finance world. Yeah, well, that was pretty easy. I was one of seven kids, right? And um, uh, uh, Irish Catholic in Boston, one of seven kids. Um, um, uh, all six of my brothers and sisters went through school. Um, uh, my my mother was at home. My father worked for the IRS. So we didn't have a lot of money. And um, uh, it was in uh, in high school time where my father said, you know, like, what do you think you want to do? I said, I don't know. Um, and, and he said, well, my father was an accountant. My older brother was an accountant. He ended up being a CFO of uh, a company called StrideRight. And so he said, you're good in math. I'm an accountant. Your brother's an accountant. Maybe you should be an accountant. So so that's how my career choice was made. It was a little simpler in those days, I think, um, than, than today. And, and you know, I've got three kids. And so they, they've gone through different things in their um in their career cycle, which was a little bit more complicated, I think, or have more choices anyway than, than what I had. So it worked out fine in the end. None of your kids are accountants? Um, none of my kids are accountants. One works for a hedge fund, but but none of my kids are accountants, yeah. So uh, you then joined PwC? I did, yeah. So I took a traditional route, as, as we'll talk about from a CFO perspective. I, I went to a company called, uh, a school called Bentley uh, University. Um, which was um, is was and is still, you know, a very good business school um, just outside of Boston on a small scale. Um, but it was um, a bit of a feeder system into the the, the big eight at the time, and um, so I did well enough at Bentley um, to be able to be um, interviewed by Pricewaterhouse uh, by Coopers and Library at the time, and then um, in turn took the path into um, public accounting. And what, how long were you there and what did you do next? I would have been there for like five years, five and a half years. So from 1981 to 19, um, uh, roughly 1986 uh, in public accounting. And um, the Boston office of Coopers at that time was very much tech focused, right? And so a big part of my clients were, were, were tech companies. Um, uh, its biggest clients was a company called Digital um, Equipment at the time, which helped make um, uh, Coopers and Libran's, um office actually. Um, but, but as a result, I was in a lot of tech companies. And so, um, I got exposed to a lot of different software companies and hardware companies. And I was lucky enough, um, when a time, uh, came that I was thinking about leaving public accounting, that I went to work for one of my, um, one of my, um, one of my clients, a company called Colonet Software. Um, I had a really good opportunity to go work for them and, and I was a manager at the time at Cooper's or like a supervisor about to be manager. Um, and went into um, a role at a company called Colonet Software. And what was your role at Colonet? Yeah, that was also, and, and we'll talk about sort of, um, uh, I think you wanted, uh, we'll talk about some of the breaks that that I might've gotten. Um, Colonet was um, uh, one of the leading software companies um, uh, at the time here in uh, Boston. Uh, it was the first software company ever listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So if you go way back, it was formed by a gentleman uh, named, named John Cullinane, who was in large part a big part of um, building the tech industry here in Boston. Um, but um, uh, I went into a role as European um, finance director. Um, so at age 26, um, I actually picked up and went overseas and moved to London um, and uh, took a role over there to be um, a little bit of the eyes and ears of the corporate 
um, finance staff on their European operations. Um, they were roughly a $250 million company and Europe was about $50 million of their business. So I, without having ever left the United States, um, I got a passport, took a job, um, went overseas and, and spent four, almost five years in London as their European finance director for Cullinan. And the finance director role, is that accounting or financial planning or both? Um, it was it was a lot of both. And it was accounting, um, um, budgeting, and mainly revenue operations. And so the ability to, in those days, you know, you had, um, there was less controls around the, the revenue process, right? And um, the recognition process around software deals. And so... It was really sent over there to help manage that and ensure that deals that were being um, negotiated and committed to overseas were, in fact, in compliance with, with the company's policy and U.S. GAAP policy. Uh, and so I was a little bit seen as a corporate policeman because I think I was the only American, you know, overseas for Calinet. But um, it quickly allowed me to get heavily involved in the operations over there and provided me a lot of background from uh, how to negotiate, how to negotiate with customers, how to work with salespeople, how to then become the bridge with corporate to get deals done and get deals approved. Typically, when you have a structure like that, uh, the finance director is dotted line to the managing director and, and solid line to the corporate CFO or vice versa. What was the structure there and how, how did you? How yeah, did you I was, I was. It was a bit of a, um, I wouldn't say a weird structure at the time, it was a typical structure at the time that one would view as weird now. Um, but but we had subsidiaries in five or six major countries throughout Europe. They all had European, they all had their own finance directors who worked for country managers. Um, I, all those finance directors um, dotted line into me um, and um, I dotted line into a European vice president um, of, of in the entire business, um, sales and operations. And I direct lined into the corporate controller, um, uh, eventually the VP of finance. So, so I was a direct line back to the U S and sort of everything else was dotted line within the, um, the country structure, which created some, I, I would say some difficulties, right. Of like being accepted over there, um, and, and sort of being able to have some power base, but you know, in the end it, it, it worked out fine. Now, age 26, relatively young, uh, taking on this important new role in a, in a new country and a new the new people. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Would you? Is that something you're glad you did? Would you recommend it to others if they have an opportunity to work overseas? Yeah, it was it it was a little at the time, right? It was a little bit more than I had imagined when I got over there. But yeah, I was I was age 26. I was seen as a young American. I'd never been outside of, of the United States before. Um, uh, and, um, all the people like dotted line reporting to me were older, you know, finance directors who had been with the company for a while. And so it was, it was a little difficult kind of winning, uh, originally winning them over and showing that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of the solution, not here to just like police them and to try to, you know, make things better. Um, so, so, I, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, it was a little difficult making the adjustment and it it well, it had its challenges, right? Um, but in the end, it was a great thing. And I think it, it it set me up for a lot of the rest of my career because what happened over there were two things. 
I was, um, uh, three things. I was forced to learn operations. Um, and um, I was lucky enough to have a whole series of salespeople in Europe who sort of took me underneath their wing and helped teach me how to negotiate, right? And I and and some of it was through osmosis, but just seeing what they did, right? And being involved in the sales situations with them. So one, I learned operations. Two, I learned communications because I was I I, I had to figure out what was the agenda of the other person on the other side, whether it was a, a finance director in Belgium or Germany or, or the UK, and then try to figure out, okay, how do we do this together and work together? So I learned the, the negotiation uh, process. And then three, it was um, in the end, something that really differentiated me in my career. Um, because at that time, it's much more common now that you get US expats, but at that time that was not happening often, right? And people thought, okay, hey, this, this kid took a risk, went overseas, did this for four or five years, was somewhat successful at it. Like, like he's got to have like, you know, some guts um, to be able to, you know, and some guts and some backbone to come back and do other things. So I'd say it, it got me in the door of a lot of places as a result because it differentiated me in the marketplace um, that you were not seeing that much. Um, and when it, in the end, it got me the job, I think, at Parametric Technology, because I don't think I would have got a look at Parametric um, without having that experience. We'll, we'll get to Parametric in a minute. Uh, but first, I'd like to just uh, ask the people on the call if they have questions, put it in the chat and I'll, I'll read it and ask questions. I've got plenty of questions myself, but if you have a question you'd like to ask, just add it to the chat. Uh, you mentioned, Jim, that you had learned how to negotiate as part of the Colonet experience. What do you mean by that? Um, so, so in any negotiation, um, the two things you, you I always believe you have to put yourself in the other person's position and then that person needs some wins. Right. And so I was negotiating in some cases or seeing salespeople and helping salespeople negotiate with big companies like Michelin and other places in, in Europe. And those procurement people or purchasing people had to have a certain win, whether that was price or whether it was service or something like that. And so the whole idea was trying to figure out on the other side of that table, what is the person you know really like want and what can be a win for them? And then at the same time, you have to figure out, okay, what can I not give up? And, you know, how am I reading the room or reading the person in that they're going to be, I'm going to be able to convince them to kind of come to my side of the table on the thing that I'm not giving up. And so I, I think it's helped me. I think I learned that there. I think I learned it through um, one being pushed into it, but two, through seeing people who are much more experienced than I do it. Um, and it's really helped me throughout my career now, help me negotiate deals, right? Because I always look at that as a way of what is the person on the other side of the table want and what can be a win for them and how do we do this together and, and work together with people. Um, and sometimes you run in situations where it's just somebody on the other side of the table who's who's got an agenda and you're not going to you know be able to kind of get that agenda and you got to decide, do I want this or not? But But most times... People are, they're, they're human on the other side and they just, they understand you need something and, and they need something. And you try to find that, that spot in the middle. Uh, Jim, you mentioned price negotiation and, and there are sort of two extremes in my experience. You've got companies like Atlassian that for many years had a list price on the website. They said, that's the price. We're not going to negotiate, take it or leave it. And then you've got companies like Oracle where I was CFO, where we would have very high list prices and it was easy to negotiate a 20% discount. And if you were big and aggressive, you could get a 90% discount. 
and the, the list prices really didn't mean much. Uh, are, are you saying that you think there's value for a software company to have high list prices and then give discounts to let the buyers feel like they have a win? I, I don't think the, the word high, because I've been in environments where they had dis, uh, prices that were really, really high, and, and they would do the same thing. They would discount it at 90%. And, and there you feel like you're undervaluing your product, right? And so I, I do think you need to price your product in a way in which you can give up some. But by when I say some, I'm talking about 20 to 40% discount in that sort of a range, as opposed to 90%. If you're if I'm negotiating a 90% discount, that means like the the pricing structure doesn't mean anything and that that, that the value of the product is not being represented well, right? And so I, I, I think people need to price their product fairly. But but taking a position like Alassian does, I mean it, it it's great if you can get away with it. Um I, I've I mean if you're in a B2C world or you're in a B2B, which is a, you know, a click-through world, LogMeIn was in it, right? And and so we didn't necessarily negotiate prices of LogMeIn because a lot of it was touchless and it was on the website and you went through it. Um, um, but but bigger deals, we negotiated bigger deals and those prices came down off of that depending on the volume. And so I think people expect that. Um, and and people need to, people should not be expecting that, hey, I'm going to go get a 60% discount stuff. You know, we've... We've never done that at Drift. We never did it at LogMeIn. Um, uh, uh, yeah, we 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 never did it at PTC either. Um, but but we were in a mode of okay for certain things you can get yourself in a twenty to forty percent discount range. Yeah, at Oracle, just to be clear, uh, the the biggest discounts were for very large deals. So if you had a million dollar contract, maybe you get a twenty percent discount. If you had a hundred million dollar contract, you could get ninety percent. But they're not going to give ninety percent if you're not at hundred million. So. Yeah, understand, understand. Yeah. Uh, so, so you've after uh, calling that you said it set that set up your career to get this job at Parametric. Uh, talk about how that came about. Um, yeah, at at I actually had one stint in between um, uh, Colinet and Parametric. I I actually left the software industry and went to work for an environmental tech industry. Um, it was so-called the so-called Yankatank industry and then green um, uh, in a bit of a green wave where um, um, uh, it was it was more a geology company than a um, than, than a software company. So I took myself out of an environment in which I knew very, very well and put myself into one that I didn't know that well. And, and it just didn't work out. Um, uh, so in, in, when I look back on my career, was that a mistake? Sure, it was a mistake. But but I learned a lot from it because I learned where I should be. Um, I also, at the same time, was I was um, moving back from Europe to, to Boston and I was trying to find a job in Boston um, from London. And so uh, it wasn't the easiest thing to do. So one could say, OK, there's a reason for the mistake. Um, but but with that, I um, I decided I wanted to get back in the software space. Um, Parametric Technology went public in, in 1989. Um, I started there in 1991. Um, it was one of the fastest growing companies at the time in the in the Boston area, but it was just starting to be known. It was roughly a ninety million dollar software uh, company at the time. They had um, uh, an opportunity to come in to be a manager of financial planning um, to run the budgeting uh, system and cycle. By manager of financial planning, I was like managing myself, so there was nobody that I was really managing. Um, but I had that opportunity, like I alluded to earlier, you know, Parametric at the time had not um, set up in Europe yet. 
and they had the idea of, okay, um, we're going to get this model working in the US and then we're going to start to set up uh, uh, in Europe. And I think they saw in me an opportunity of this guy's done Europe before. Maybe we could get him to go um, go back to Europe and help us set up in Europe. So I think that certainly that that differentiation of having done Europe um, and been there before, and um, you know, with an opportunity to maybe if the company continued to grow, I could add value in that area. I think that's what differentiated me from other candidates in the in the parametric world. Now your title there was manager, so you you were in the middle management of the financial, there was someone the head of financial planning you reported to, or were you the head? No, of you know, in, no. in those days, it was it was a much simpler structure. So I worked for the guy who was CFO, Mark uh, Mark Elgo, who was the original CFO of, uh, of Parametric. So I worked directly for um, uh, for Mark as manager of financial planning. We had a controller that did all the the, the accounting side of the business. Um, now that was probably just me and, and her, Kate Carroll, um, uh, at the time. So yeah, there was, there was a very simple, um, flat structure. And how did you feel about going from a, an area where you had, it sounds like a lot of responsibility at, at, at Cullen, at least two jobs ago, where you had multiple finance directors reporting into you and here you had no one, you, had, you were the manager, but you didn't have anyone to manage, right? Is that, did you feel like that was a step back or? Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 And at the time, yeah, it, it certainly felt like a step back, but, but um, I, I, I had learned, you know, earlier or, or um, subsequently even um, uh, taking, taking a step back to then take uh, two steps forward. So what I was really focused on was getting back into the environment of getting back into a software company and getting back into a fast paced, high tech, you know, environment. And if that meant I had to take a step back to go do that, I was willing to go do that because I felt like longer term, you know, it'd be a better place for me to be. And parametric grew from 90 million to how large when over the 900 so so parametric if 90 to 900 went through 10 90 900 between um 19 um 1991 and 19 uh, uh all organic um and so it was one of the fastest growing tech i would say tech companies ever but in this world they're, they're growing a lot faster but at that time one of the fastest growing um uh, uh software companies so yeah we went from 90 million dollars to 900 million dollars um in a roughly seven year period of time which was like unbelievable a 40 percent growth year over year and 40 percent margin so so we had a 40 40 rule um and that's how we ran the ran, ran the business during that period and if you go so back you had 40 percent revenue growth and a 40 percent margin so you had a rule of 80 essentially that's right yeah wow. people yeah. would love that so yeah. it's uh and by the way parametric as as you know is a bessemer venture partners portfolio company so one of our great uh great portfolio companies uh, under the leadership of Steve Walski. So you got a chance to work with Steve and, and know him well. What made him such a terrific CEO in your mind? Really smart. Yeah, and uh, re really, really smart. And his ability to um, um, sort of analyze um, situations and sort of pick out the one area of which like to poke at and to then go like dig further. Like he had an innate ability to do that. Like, like uh, uh, yeah, we would give we 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 would um, we would give him the model, or the forecast model, or the budget model, and it would be on two or three pieces of paper. Um, uh, and he would find the the and it would have all sorts of columns and and numbers. And he would find the one or two numbers that looked like weird, 
and and then be able to poke further further at those numbers. But but he was really smart, could identify where problems were, and then just really driven around results. You know, both him and um, a gentleman named uh, Dick Harrison, who became CEO after Steve, um, were really focused on the end result and and getting to the end result and not worried about um, all the politics or the bullshit in between, which made the company such a great company. So it was not bureaucratic at all. It was just action. No, zero. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it, it was a startup as a $90 million company, and I still contend as a $900 million company, um, we still functioned like a startup. Um, and, and that was a lot of fun as, as an employee or a manager or a director or a VP to be doing that. Um, it, it, it was fun. It was a little hectic, but it was fun. And over your 10 or 11 years there, you got increasing responsibility. Talk about your personal career within. Paramount. Yeah, I went. Uh, yeah, I, I, I went on. on um, I, I did. In the end, I ended up going back to Europe um, for Paramount. So I became chief financial officer for International, um, which at the time. In parametric, yeah, um, um, which which also was a glorified title because at the time it had one finance person in um, the south of France working for it, but mm -hmm. but the objective was to go over and set up the finance and operations um, to be able to support the scaling in Europe and uh, Asia Pacific, uh, and then get back to the U.S. So I went back to Europe for roughly an eighteen month period of time and did that and hired people throughout Europe and set up the systems and the organization and really worked very, very closely with the sales management over there in doing that. Um, and so it was, um, it, yeah, it was a it was a fun period of time, but that was my next step. I went from, from manager of financial planning to being CFO international. Um, at the time, um, my, um, my wife was with me when I was with Colinet in in um, uh, in Europe, um, and so she moved um, uh, the day after we were married um, uh, to London and helped support me for four or five years um, when I was in uh, when we were at, at um, Colinet. Uh, when the opportunity to go back with Parametric to uh, to Europe um, to London. Um, uh, came up she was in the mode of like yeah you, you go do it but I'm staying I, I'm staying in America she had she had done that European thing once we had just built a house back here she had her job back here we had our first child back here every the, the life was being a little bit set and then I was upsetting it by going back um uh to London um but um she was supportive enough for me to go if it was good for my career she was like go do it Get a place big enough over there that in case it doesn't work out personally, that I that that her and my son could come over, um, but that if it worked out personally, like we would just see each other every six months or so. Um, as, as she came over once, and I would come back, you know. So every three or four months, we would see each other for that eighteen month period of time. Um, and so I did that. I set it up, and then I came back to, uh, to yeah, came back to America into a VP of finance role, um, running finance and and treasury for for parametric that must have been uh, a tough personal decision to decide to to set your personal life aside for 18 months and not see your your family especially the young child in in hindsight was that the right decision or if you could yeah. do it again would you yeah i would do it again i you know and my wife and i discussed it and it was kind of like um uh we viewed it a little bit like going to war right the the different generations you know 
um, you know, my 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 father went to World War II, right? And and the next generation went to Vietnam for 18 to 24 months, right? And so I was like, okay, I, we can take London for, for 18 months, right? Just get over there, get it done, and then get back. And so um it it in the end um was very, very um advantageous for my career because parametric, yeah, you know, continued to grow. I really proved myself over over in Europe and helped set up the, the organization. And um, in the end became very lucrative because parametric you know, stock was one of the fastest growing stocks um, uh, in the 1990s. And so, you know, I, I did it at a period of time and Steve and Dick were, were generous enough to give me some options that in turn, you know, turned into some, some very good money to help us um, kind of do some things in our lives that we wouldn't be able to do, right? And it likewise positioned me for success at parametric and then their further, further success outside of parametric. I had a similar experience that came to the opposite conclusion. There was a period in my career where I was, our family was living in Connecticut and I got a job in Boston for a year and my wife, where the kids were in school and my wife said, yeah, if it works out, we'll move to Boston eventually, but why don't you commute for a year? And so I just drive up Monday morning, come back Thursday night. And for, and so it wasn't even as, as distant as you were, uh, but it, it was a very tough time. I had three young kids and, uh, it, it turns out that I ended up not staying at that company, so ended up not moving. But in hindsight, I don't think I would have done that again. I think uh, I would have rather stayed with the family and just tried to find a local job. It, it sounds like it worked out well for you. Yeah, I, I, I and and I think my wife would say the same too. That 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 um, you know it worked out. Um, it worked out in the end, uh, and it worked out in the end. And we had certainly safety valves where we could have pulled know with her coming over or if I really wanted to come back come back right but um but you know she ran the house and and I sort of ran the the payroll a little bit right and uh during that period of time so it worked out fine so up to this point you you have been in finance but not uh, the CFO tell us about how you got to be CFO yeah so so I was never CFO of parametric technology by the time um um by the time I would say I was experienced enough, um, um, yeah, parametric was very, very big, right? And 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 uh, you know, um, uh, sort of you know, on the front page of the of the tech news. Um, and so I never became uh, CFO at Parametric. I actually never felt I was quite ready to be CFO at Parametric. By the time I was ready, it was like a really big company. A gentleman named uh, uh, Ed Gillis, who was who I had. Um, work for at, at um, Cooper's and Libran, who then became CFO of Lotus. I helped recruit him in at the time of the Lotus IBM acquisition. At the time, Mark Gallagher decided he wanted to leave um, Parametric. So um, it was a nice transition for me and that I knew who the CFO coming in was. And it was, you know, a guy that, that one, I respected, two, I learned from, and to, to a certain extent was, has been a little bit of a mentor to me uh, throughout my career. Um, uh, we'll come to like later where where I bring Ed onto the board of directors of uh, of Logman, but but he's still a good friend and a, and a good mentor to me. Um, so so I became um, uh, Parametric did like any tech company had its ups and downs, and and I stayed through a couple of little cycles, and then finally decided you know it was time for me to try to go off and do my own thing, and I left Parametric in um, two thousand two. 
um, and went to a startup, um, uh, a company called I Am Logic, which was roughly 35 person startup and, you know, was the CFO of, of, of I Am Logic um, for a three, four year period of time. So going from the number two finance person at a $900 million company to being the number one person at a $30 million company is, is a pretty typical path where you, you get a more senior role at a smaller company, but that's a big drop to go to company one thirtieth the size. Huge. Yeah. yeah you... when, I left, when I left Parametric, I had 135 people working for me um, in Parametric Technology. When I went to IMLogic, I had one person working for me, and it was a receptionist. Um, and I went from, um, I roughly took my um, cash compensation and, you know, in half to go into a startup environment. You know, I got roughly a 1% of the company, but I took my cash compensation in half. And um, it was, again, a discussion with my wife and I where it's like, okay, you know, we don't need what you were making a parametric to live on. And, you know, if you think this has like, you know, more upside, um, then then let's go do it. And more importantly, if you think it'd be fun and you get back into a startup environment, then then go do it, right? And so that's what I went and did. Um, so again, you know, I'm a big Boston Celtics fan. Um, Brad Auerbach always had a saying, rather be lucky than good. So, so um I, I kind of got lucky with with I'm Logic. I got into a CFO role. It scaled for a period of time, and and was in the end a very successful um, exit with uh, with a sale to Semantic. So so it was a good time, and it got me CFO. It got me startup, um, and so it was fun. How did you think about taking that role as opposed to waiting and trying to find a CFO role at a company with 100 or 200 million revenue? So yeah. that it was just more scale. Did you did yeah. you, you concerned that it was too small? Yeah, I was. Interesting question though, because at the time I actually had two job offers. I had a job offer of um uh from from I am Logic. Um and I had a job offer from a public um company, a company called what's called GEC at the time, G-E-A-C. Um, it was a Canadian software company that had been buying up different components in uh, companies in the U.S. Um, I think Software AG was one of them. But anyway, it was public um, uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, it was bigger. It was more complicated, and I had and the compensation was roughly two times. Uh, you know, it was what what I ended up taking at at IOMAT Logic. I just felt in my heart and in my gut, what I wanted to do was to do a startup. And, and uh, I've always been, I, I thought PTC for nine of the 11 years that I was there was a startup, right? And, and I wanted to get back into that startup world. And so that's what I did. And it sounded like it worked out pretty well. We have some questions in the chat. Uh, Adrian asks about uh, what blind spots or challenges that you have uh, coming up uh, from accounting to a CFO. It's a, obviously a different role. You start out in account, as accountant, and then you move into the the, the uh, finance director roles you had, and then a CFO role. How, how how did you deal with that, and how does that compare with someone who you think comes up from an FP&A role without the accounting background? Yeah, I I I think the. Uh, I, I was lucky enough for two things. One, I got the operation experience way back at Conant, right? And so so I then, I, I left sort of, I, I was always strong in accounting, right? And so, so I was, um, yeah, I, I was strong accounting skill-wise. Um, and what I learned for, for at Conant in the field was the operations experience. And then I became a business person. Uh, and at 
uh, parametric, I got the FPNA experience. And so I sort of rounded myself out and became get, got out of that, you know, accounting world through the business experiences that I ended up uh, uh, getting. Uh, and so that I did not get pigeonholed into the, um, yeah, the, you know, here's the accountant and the, the CFO that's an accountant. And even today, I say, look, I am not, I mean, I, I know accounting, but I am not the strongest accountant anymore. And what I hire for is I have strong people to do that accounting stuff. And I really try to focus on the business stuff and the people stuff and developing the organizations. So, so I don't know if they were blind spots, but I was able with my experience to sort of, you know, round myself out and get away from that, that accounting technical nature. So when you were the CFO at any of these companies, if you had someone who had come up through the accounting function and someone else would come up through the FPA function and each of them comes to you and say, says, I'd like to become CFO one day. What, what, what career advice do you have? How can I, how can you help me get there? What would, what would you, what advice would you give them and how could you help them? Yeah, it depends. So, so those are two different paths, right? And so, so if you're coming up from the accounting side, then what you really then need to get is um, how do you get on the operation side of the business? And you should see the FP&A part of the business. That's where you see the operations and that's where you help businesses grow. Um, and then uh, alternatively, if you're coming up from the FP&A side, then you need to get on the other side of the business and get onto the controller side of the business. So you see the other side. And that doesn't mean that that you become an expert in either of those two sides, but it knows that, that at least you've got exposure to it. And then in turn, when you hire, you hire to your weaknesses, right? Good example is a very, very good guy, um, Ed Hurditz. I've known him for um, for 30 years. Him, him and I started at Parametric together. He was on the FP&A side at Parametric Technology. And at a certain point, um, when I was VP of finance, I moved him or he came back to and it was on the controller side of the business. And therefore, so he and he was very, very smart FP&A wise, um, but he he wasn't a public accountant. And, you know, there was always the stigma of, well, you can't be a CFO if you don't have public accounting experience. Um, Ed became controller at PTC for a couple of years. Um, then he went off and did some operations stuff at PTC. I brought him when I went to log me in a couple of years being log me in. I brought him in as um, VP of finance at, at, at LogVN. And initially he started just running the accounting side of the business because he had already had the FP&A side. I did the FP&A myself. Uh, and in turn, when I left um, uh, PTC, and when I left LogVN, I handed that CFO reign to, to Ed in, in 2015. And so, you know, there was a good example of someone wasn't a public accountant, um, Really, really smart um, FP&A wise, developed accounting skills through some of the experiences, actually in the end became a stronger accountant than I did because of that. Um, and, you know, became a very, very successful um, uh, CFO at LogMeIn after after I let Log, left LogMeIn. And, and you were willing to give Ed the controller role, even though he wasn't the accountant, because you already had worked with him and you had confidence in it. Yep. yep. So you probably wouldn't have hired him from outside for that role, but in terms um, of the internal transfer. Yeah, probably not without without good external recommendations. Probably not. Yeah, without good external recommendations. But but I I had confidence. I knew what my strengths were. I knew I could help him in those areas. And I knew like he worked hard and he was really smart. And so he can figure out that stuff. Right. And so when we had that combination, I felt, okay, we can make this work. And and you know that it would be really good for his career as he developed that side of you can call it the left side of the brain versus the right side of the brain. 
And the other thing that you uh, were fortunate enough to do is to have this finance director role early in your career was really a general finance role. You had both accounting and FP&A early yeah. on. And some businesses have business units and the business units have a, a business leader and a financial leader. And there are other companies like Oracle, which are very functional. So at Oracle, I was the only person out of, of 6,000 people in finance who had the title of CFO. We didn't have a European CFO or divisional CFOs. It was all, you were either an FP&A or an accounting, and then you spent your career going up vertically like that. But, yep. but many businesses, like it sounds like some of yours, had these business unit structures of business unit finance leaders. And that perhaps is a better way to stepping stone to become a CFO because you're really the acting CFO of the, of the business. It's just a subsidiary, right? You are, yeah. Or, or, or the other, you know, the, the other way is to make sure that, that as my job as CFO is to develop the people within my organization and, and um, people who are on the FP&A side need to get exposure to the accounting side and people on the accounting side need to get exposure to the FP&A side. So just like, you know, it might be um, not, it, and it is a good example, but probably not the only example. The switching of those roles, right? And that 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 is your job as a manager is to manage people so that they develop their careers and and not to just like continue to pile on to the strengths of the people, but to like ensuring that that person is developing as well as you're getting the job done. I always tell everybody um, in in my organizations, like, look, you know, at the at the end of a year, when we look back and we think, okay, how did we do as a department? I'd like my people to be saying, you know, three things. Um, one, that they developed a skill set that they didn't have. Um, um, two, that they made some money. And three, that they had fun, right? And so, so, so we always sort of sit back, you know, from my early days of parametric and we looked at goals in that way. And like, how are our people being developed so that in turn, they are gonna be better at the end of the year. It's always been a matter of pride for me is how many people worked for me in finance who later on became a chief financial officer of a company. And yep. the answer is you know, over over a dozen. And uh, it's it's very exciting for, for me. And yep. I don't know if it sounds like you've had the same experience and a number of CFOs have that yep. as a matter of pride. If you're working in a finance organization and the CFO doesn't have that attitude, I guess that's a challenge, right? Then what do you do? Yeah. You, uh, you have that conversation with the CFO or do you find another company where the CFO has that development? Yeah, no, I think you have the conversation with the CFO, right? And you do two things. You need to, I've always told people like, look, it's your job to manage your career. It's not my job to manage your career, right? Like I got other stuff to do besides managing your career, um, but I'm going to help you manage your career, right? And so to the extent like you need to have a conversation with the CFO, you need to just explain like, look, here's what I really want to do and want to develop. Like there are ways I can get exposed to that. And some of it is internal and some of it is external. Some of it is ensuring that you attend seminars or attend classes or go to trainings, you know, that will give you that other side of the business. I think people understand that if people, if, if you have that conversation and they're obstinate of a, like, that's not going to happen here, then that's a different story. But, but uh, I, yeah, I, I've never run into it in, in my career and, and people have always been willing to help me develop, whether those were the operating people way back in Colonet days or Ed Gillis in my parametric days. Um, they, 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 like you just said, they want to develop the people underneath them because they feel good about that, right? And, and that's what they're contributing, you know, to, to the next generation, if you want to say. So you had terrific experience early in your career at Colonet, then 11 years at, at Parametric, increasing responsibility, then your first CFO role at IM Logic. Uh, take us forward. What happened next? 
Yeah, then then so I I'm logic went through a transaction. Um we um we got the business to roughly 10 or 11 million dollars. It wasn't really gonna, it was gonna scale a little bit beyond that, but 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 it really became a good opportunity in which to um uh, to position the company. And um uh, we sold the company to the semantic um at at roughly 10, 12 times revenue. Uh, so it was a good deal, a very good deal in those uh, those days. Um, the CEO of uh, I'm Logic at the time was was Francis D'Souza, who went on to be, take a very big role at um, uh, at Semantic and ran a big part of their business. And in turn, uh, most recently, was the CEO of Illumina for a number of years, right? And so, it, despite being a small company, it had a really really strong team. John Sakota was the uh, CMO. John went on to be a big partner at, at at NEA for a long period of time. And so it was a fun group and, and um, uh, a good team. But when we sold that um, to Symantec, uh, um, you know, there was no real need for, for me in any role at, uh, at Symantec. And um, so I parted ways with them and then, you know, went back into the world to go, you know, find another CFO role. And that's where, um, you know, lucky enough, I, I stumbled into uh, to log me in and had an opportunity to come in to log me in and be a CFO of log me in. So tell, tell us the log me in story. Yeah, Lugme is a great, it's a great Boston story for those of you who are online from uh, from Boston. Um, Lugme is, is a, was um, a Hungarian company um, that um, uh, was in the remote access space um, and uh, development was entirely uh, in Hungary. I went there in um, 2006. Um, there were roughly 50 employees. We were doing roughly seven, $8 million in revenue. Um, and um, it came to Boston, um, and, and we told the story to the mayor of Boston, Mayor uh, Walsh at the time, Mayor Menino, and then Mayor Walsh. But um, Mike Simon and Martin Anker were the two founders of Lug Me In, and they came to Boston. They were setting up in um, uh, in America, uh, and they wanted to like establish headquarters. And they chose Boston for for a few reasons. One uh, being um, proximity to Europe and the ability to be five or six hours away from from Hungary. Um, the ability to relatively fly and and get to um, Europe, you know, relatively easily than from the West Coast, and um, the ability to uh, raise money. And so, so the venture market at Boston still is, but but was um, was very um, very strong at that time. And then fourth, from a quality of life perspective, that that um, um, uh, I think Mike, Mike was um, from Ohio. He was an American and went to Notre Dame University, worked most of his life in Hungary after that. Um, but he wanted to um, to raise his kids on the East Coast versus the West Coast. And so with all that, they set up in uh, uh, Boston. And uh, I was able to come in and help Mike and Martin establish the finance organization and build that company. And we went from... 50 employees in, in 2006 to um, roughly 2000 with 800 or so in Boston. Um, we went from the, the private markets um, to the public markets, uh, as we talked about earlier. Uh, we went from um, being a technology company that was located on the outside of Boston in a place called Woburn, Massachusetts to being the largest high-tech company um, in the seaport. At the time, Mayor Menino was just establishing the innovation district. And you know, I think in all in all, when we look at it, we made a difference. We made a difference in the tech industry. We made a difference for our employees, and I think we made a difference in the community in uh, in Boston. So it was a fun time to be there, and and it was a great company. We uh, I think we accomplished a lot here. Jim, uh, 
at, at, in your career, you worked for a number of interesting companies, and I'm sure you had many important decisions. What was a decision that you were involved in where at the time uh, you didn't know what the right answer was? You could have done A, B, or C. Uh, you chose A because the you know you had the pros and cons and you thought it through. And just tell us that story of, a, of a, an important strategic decision that you were involved in at one of the companies. Yeah. Um... Certainly going public at Lugman was one. The, the, the Lugman is probably the one that, that I was at the right level to make some of those strategic decisions. Um, uh, parametric, I, I don't think I was you know involved at that level to make some of the strategic decisions around parametric. We we did some acquisitions at parametric that were strategic, but but I was more implementing that than making the decisions around that. But but at, at Lugman, um you know, we we elected to go to the public markets versus to you know to try to sell that company into a into a private market, and and because we felt um, we still had a lot of room to run, um, and um, we felt um, we could um, you know continue to grow that company and and make a difference for our employees' lives and for the community. So so we made a strategic decision of let's go, let's take this thing into the public market at a time when. You know, again, the banking crisis was brand new and the public markets we were one of four tech companies to get out. You know, um, uh, one could have easily have sold into the private market and, and uh, you know, the management team and Mike and Martin, the two founders, taken their money and, and gone home. Uh, but the idea was we thought we had more to do. So I, I, I think that was one with Logman. The second um, with Logman, and it seems a little smaller, was um, we were... We were located outside of Boston, uh, roughly 20 miles outside of Boston, and um, we were at a time growing really fast and the employee base or the candidate base was more and more or less coming out of the cities, right? And so we were competing with the hub spots of the world that were in Cambridge with Microsoft that were in Cambridge with a company called Brightcove at the time that was in Cambridge. Um, and we were trying to convince these kids um, that were living in the city um, to come out to the 20 miles outside the city and, you know, take a position with us uh, as opposed to, you know, get on the subway or get on the bus and go, you know, across town and, and work for these tech companies. Um, eventually, we decided as a management team to stop fighting that battle and pick the company up and move it into the city, which was not easy for us to do, given that, uh, you know, we had roughly 200, 300 employees at the time. Most of them were located around outside the city, and we were all of a sudden going to make a move into the city. Now, subsequently, a lot of people have done that, right? And 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 the city, particularly in the city of Boston, for you know it, a lot of companies have come into the city. But but with Log Me In, we were one of the first to go do it, and we converted an old mill building in um, the Seaport region to be a, a a neat high tech company to get people to you know when they got to work, they wanted to be there. And um, I, I think we changed culture of that company at the time, and therefore we were able to attract a different uh, level of people, more people, and bring those people in and help the company grow. And that was a strategic decision that I and I, I helped initiate with with a gentleman named uh, Mike Donahue, who was um, vice president of legal and head of uh, real estate, who worked for me. And then Mike and Martin, the two founders. We're very, very supportive of the move, despite the fact that both of them, you know, lived north of the city and were it was a much more easier commute getting into the office 
um, it, where we were as opposed to where we we're going to be. Now, in hindsight, everything's gone remote, so so it's a little bit different. But but that at that time, it was a big strategic, risky decision to pick up and move the company into the city of Austin. And what was the impact on the 200 employees at the time? Did some of the people not make the move? We lost maybe five of those 200 employees. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. less convenient, yeah. but you didn't really lose. Yeah, it was really done, and 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 you know, it was a time when there were plenty of jobs too, right? And so, but but we did it in a neat way in which we paid community expenses. We created once people got there, they thought, "Hey, this is pretty cool." And and you know, um, I had people thanking us for making the decision, and you know that it opened up their lives in a little bit different way than driving to an office every day and you know just getting in the car and going back because the city created a lot of more opportunities for people to go out and socialize. And average age of the company was 27, 28 years old, so it was an environment in which I'll call them kids. Those kids, you know, wanted to stay in the city after work. Right. Katie has a question about AI, and it's, everyone's talking about large language models and AI. Have you seen uh, use cases of AI in finance that you would recommend for people? I think they're just starting, to be honest. So I, I would say my short answer to that is is no. I like I haven't seen them yet that I'd be able to recommend and uh, as to what how AI is to be used. Um, I do think it's going to be you know a huge bridge the growth in the in the future and and um, create you know huge opportunities but to date I haven't had the experience of being able to utilize AI in within an accounting function in which I could answer that question um, uh, I, I haven't seen it in finance or accounting either but uh, there's a tool I use frequently called sybil.ai s-y-b-i-l-l.ai and what it does is you, you add it to zoom it records the call it gives you a transcript of the call and then the AI gives you a summary of what everybody said and what the follow-up action items are and you don't have, it's basically you don't have to take notes it's it's like magic it's pretty incredible civil yeah. ai so we're, we're just about out of time but we have two our two favorite questions to end with jim uh, first is what's the best advice anyone's given you i think it goes back to you you mentioned his name earlier but but i was 32 33 years old um um steve walski um when i was trying to decide the job between uh, parametric and another opportunity um, uh, Steve gave me the advice that just said, hey, um, like, forget about the job or the, the individual job that you're going into and focus more on the people that you, you're, you're interviewing the, interviewing with. Do you like the people? Um, um, do you like the culture, the feel of it? And do you have confidence that this management team can, can be successful? And do you see yourself fitting in in that environment? So he gave me the advice of like, you know, I don't care what position you come into because the role I was going in a parametric was less than some other opportunities that I had. But he said, come in, stick your head down, you know, uh, you know, do your work, get in the right environment, and you'll kind of blossom in that environment. And in turn, that that's worked out. And I've sort of followed that as I've looked at other opportunities, you know, subsequent to parametric and, and moved on to those jobs. That's terrific. And Jim, if you were going to write a playbook for chief financial officers, what's one thing that a CFO can do tomorrow morning to help this, their company and their careers? Yeah, I think in today's environment, Jeff, what analytics, and we mentioned it with AI, but analytics is becoming a, a bigger and bigger part of, of uh, the job and how, um, CFOs can help companies strategically manage. So, so I would encourage um, 
young VPs of finance or young controllers or directors of FP&A to get smarter and smarter on the use of analytics and how to use analytics to manage your businesses and make decisions. Uh, part of that will be AI driven, but the whole idea of how do I use analytics more effectively and use the data that is available that in my day was not, you know, that, you know, easily able to like put your fingers on or to analyze very quickly in large volumes. Uh, but nowadays is. And so the more I think those young CFOs or CFOs to be can get um, uh, used to that information or familiar with that, I think that will serve them well in their career. Terrific. Well, Jim Kelleher, thank you very much for sharing your story today. It's been a fascinating story and a pleasure to get to know you better. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure's all mine.